Hello and welcome everybody, this is Dr. Tully for History 311. Uh, once again, we're doing the mini-podcast thing, the mini-lectures. Uh, seems to be getting pretty good feedback, people tend to like the shorter ones, so uh, we're going to do that for this week. Uh, this week's kind of a big week, this one's kind of a big week. Um, talking before the Civil War, talking before the Civil War, a lot of things that go on here, uh, particularly in terms of you know various societies that try to get rid of abolition, and also various slave rebellions, so... You want to go ahead? Why don't you just get the uh, PowerPoint that goes along with this? You're going to see the first picture, Nat Turner. Nat Turner is a very important figure in American history, particularly when it comes to slave rebellions. He had one of the really big slave rebellions, and it really is a merger of a lot of different fears that um, the white slaveholders have about African Americans and what is their place in society. All right, so just be thinking about that. We're going to close with Nat Turner today. But anti-slavery, I should mention, it's got kind of a long history within the United States. And um, there, there are two separate movements you want to know about. There are two separate movements. Two separate movements. They don't interact with each other too, too much. And they have very different objectives. Uh, before the Civil War, like I said, there's two really big anti-slavery movements. Uh, the first one is based in the South. The first one is based in the South. Uh, with free black people, a couple of uh, a couple white people, not too many, but mainly black people, uh, they're mainly interested in you know trying to get rid of individual slaves. They they want to get rid of slavery on an individual basis. Yeah, you might have some enslaved black persons who are of uh, of, of status. Uh, that sounds weird to say about a slave, but you know maybe they're in a more urban setting. Maybe they're um, um, a tradesman slave, perhaps. Uh, they have maybe a bit more skill. Uh, the main thing you want about this system is that it's not really trying to get rid of slavery as a whole system. It, it's not really too, too much about the institution of slavery, that sort of thing. It's mainly talking about how do we get rid of individual slaves? You know, how, how can somebody try to free themselves? Uh, generally, this type of abolition anti-slave societies are mainly on the individual basis. They're not a huge fan of slavery in general, I should mention. It's not like, oh, they're sympathetic towards slavery. It's more like they they don't really want to take on the institution itself. Uh, the second group is the one we've talked about quite a bit before. That's the the more northern-based group, uh, the one that the Quakers really got around. The Quakers are really ones around this. That's a, a white sect of Christianity. This one tends to be a bit more white. Uh, this one tends to be a bit more white. Uh, they're more concerned with abolition as a whole. Uh, they're not... Too interested in individual slaves, uh, you know, the individual meanings of this all going on. And a lot of that has to do with the nature of Quakers. Uh, you, you can't really understand this, this uh, original slave movement without really understanding Quakers. Quakers as themselves are pacifist. That's probably the biggest thing you can say about Quakers is that they are very concerned with, like, human nature, uh, the plight of human beings as a whole, humanity. They are one of the few abolition groups in this time period that does believe in racial equality. But they're pacifists. They're not really looking to do anything too dramatic or anything too violent, anything too aggressive. And, and as such, they expect abolition to be a very slow, deliberate, lengthy process. This is one that wasn't going to be very dramatic. Uh, they're proponents of things like gradual abolition, you know, saying, okay, you know, 30, 40 years from now, we're going to get rid of slavery, but until that time, we're not going to bring in any new slaves. Uh, so even though they are willing to work with African-Americans, and I should mention, the Quakers are one of the few groups that genuinely believe in unity amongst all peoples. They're not advocating a very dramatic abolition. 
Now, the movement, as I say, is does not has a lot of limitations. Uh, the first is that the black and white groups really don't mix too much. Uh, the movements are actually quite segregated. They're actually quite segregated. Uh, generally, abolition groups, even the Quakers, who are better about um, you know being cool with African Americans amongst them, they generally don't allow African Americans in leadership. Uh, they expect African Americans to be like spokespeople for the movement, not even spokespeople, just like props, I guess, for the movement, and then expect the Quakers and the white persons to talk more often. Uh, so you still have a very segregated society. Now, I, I should really be quick to mention, uh, there is an informal working relationship between the two groups, but nothing ever very formal. They never really joined together. And also, I should also mention that, you know, the Quakers, as I said earlier, they are very pacifist people. They're not very aggressive people. They expect it to be very gradual and also compensated. Um, another thing they want is compensated emancipation, where basically the slave masters are going to be paid the value of the slave that they are freeing. Uh, so basically the slave master will be paid the value of the slave to free them so it's not they're not out any money. Uh, this is something that's, you know, seen to done not to upset people, to assure people they're not going to be out of their money because slaves are pretty pricey. And I should also mention that abolition does not mean equal rights, okay? Um, abolition does not mean equal rights. You've heard me say this a million times in this course, but just because somebody was anti-slavery doesn't mean they're pro-black. This is the primo example. Most of these abolition groups really don't know what to do with black people. Um, I mean, granted, the, the, the ones with black people in them, of course, know what they want to do with black people. They're like, yeah, hey, we're black people. We're, we're cool, and we want to hang out and do stuff. But the ones led by, led by white persons, like I said, even the Quakers, who are a bit better about equality, they don't really know what the role for black people is going to be in the United States long term. Uh, there's a lot of talk of getting rid of slavery, but not so much talk about what to do with African Americans once they're free. Nobody really wants, like, true equality on a societal basis. The Quakers do, but the Quakers are kind of small in number and more in leadership. Uh, most of your white abolitionists, they really don't see themselves as equal to African Americans. Um, their, their opposition to slavery is more to do with, like, getting rid of elitism, uh, various economic arguments, not so much about the humanity of black people. Which is a problem because the Northern abolitionists really don't do much for the South. You have a lot of the Northern abolitionists talking about, like, getting rid of slavery around them. Or, you know, just getting rid of slavery in general to punish people in the South. They don't have too much interest in the actual slaves themselves, particularly Southern slaves. Particularly Southern slaves. So as such, it was pretty much left to the black folks in the South to do most of the advocating. Uh, not too, too much of him to go, to go around. Uh, remember, black people in the South, a lot of them are slaves, or if they are people of means, or they might be somebody like in New Orleans who might actually own slaves themselves. Uh, you know, you're free people of color who, like, you know, bought their way out of slavery or worked their way out of slavery. Uh, they might have a limited um, draw. Not draw. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, influence. Influence. It's a much better word than draw. Limited influence in this time period. Now, you also have a lot of slave revolts. There's a lot of slave revolts, okay? Uh, there are tons of slave revolts that happen. Actually, there are not that many slave revolts. I, I, I should clarify that. There really aren't that many slave revolts, but there's way fearful of slave revolts, if that makes sense. There's way more talk about slave revolts than there actually are slave revolts. 
And a lot of that comes from the influence of Haiti. Remember in 1804, the Haitian Revolution happened, Toussaint Louverture kicked out the French, and basically Haiti is the first country in the New World to totally ban slavery in all of its forms. And it's a country pretty much for and by former slaves, black people, whatever you want to call them. And there's a really big fear of this sort of rhetoric spreading across the United States, particularly in areas where you have a very large slave population, like the DeLons Rebellion and around New Orleans. Uh, actually, not too far from here, you have a fairly high black population, and so people are afraid of that. Now, the, slave, the state where you have the most slaves is Virginia. Even though Virginia has a lower percentage of slaves than other states, it has a higher raw number. And basically, you have this man named Gabriel. Gabriel's one of these slaves, and basically, he leads a revolt around the Chesapeake region. All right, He leads a revolt around the Chesapeake region, you know, around modern-day Delaware and, um, you know, Virginia, that, uh, not Delaware. Well, no, Delaware's around there, too. Maryland is what I was thinking of. Maryland, Delaware, Virginia, that area right in there. And so, basically, he really is talking about this Haitian stuff, really talks about this Haitian stuff. Uh, the rebellion itself is taken out pretty quickly. That's not really too important. It's not a very large rebellion. Uh, these rebellions are much more about the fear of it than the actual rebellion themselves. Um, a great quote I once heard is, the fear of force is more powerful than force itself. That's very apt for these slave rebellions. The fear of the slave rebellions was much more powerful than the rebellions themselves. And so because of all these, you know, rebellions, not all these rebellions, because of a rebellion like, uh, like Gabriel's Rebellion, there's more of a fear that a race war is inevitable. Uh, a lot of white persons feel that, you know, ra that, um, Slavery is going to cause a race war. There will be a race war. There will be a Haitian-style revolt. Um, there is talk amongst the various slave revolters of, you know, basically the slaves are going to take all their stuff and go to Haiti, possibly go to Florida. I should mention uh, Florida, owned by Spain. Also, you have a lot of Seminole Indians there. Um, is a place where freed slaves, not freed slaves, runaway slaves could find safe haven. Uh, mainly to screw over the English. The, the Spanish are not really like humanitarians. They're more just like, Psh, it screws over the English, messes with their money, go for it. And, and so they, it, it, the Southerners are in a very interesting position. All right? Southerners are in a very interesting position because they want slaves. They want slaves. Southerners want slaves. They feel that slaves are a status symbol. They feel that slaves are necessary for the economy. Uh, they, they, they want slaves, but they also fear too many slaves. They're afraid if there's too many slaves, we're going to have a slave revolt. And so, you know, Thomas Jefferson once said of this, that basically, uh, you know, slaveholders have the wolf by the ear as a metaphor. Or basically like, you know, the, the South has this real big problem of slavery and basically, they're kind of damned if they do, damned if they don't. Like, they have a wolf by the ear, and you know you just can't hold on to a wolf for your entire life because that's a bad thing, but as soon as you let it go, the wolf might tear you apart. And that's what the Southerners felt like they were in. Southerners have slaves. Southerners 100% have slaves. And they don't want to keep them, necessarily, because they're afraid of a big-term revolt, but they had no way to you know, safely get rid of them, quote-unquote, and to hold on to the slaves was dangerous. So they're just like, okay, we don't want to have all these slaves, but by God, we're, we're, we got all these slaves, and what are we going to do with this? And that's really messed over, if you go over one more, with D. Mark Vesey. D. Mark or Denmark Vesey, uh, very big slave revolt in Charleston, in Charleston, South Carolina. As you remember, 
Charleston in South Carolina is one of those places where there are more African Americans than there are white people. In fact, there's significantly more African Americans than white people. And also, you got to remember, because of the nature of rice uh, plantations, uh, they are also left to themselves quite a bit. They're also left to themselves quite a bit. And that's really going <laughs> to start crossing some new lines here. Uh, Vesey is a free person of color. He's a free person of color. Uh, he was a carpenter for quite a while. He basically organizes a slave revolt conspiracy. He gets a guy by the name of Gullah Jack, who's actually Eastern um, African, so it's a bit more exotic than most of your West African slaves. Uh, Gullah Jack Pritchard is his name. Basically, they start meeting in, Sh- in Charlotte, not Charlotte, I'm sorry, Charleston's AME Church. AME Church. Uh, the AME Church, actually, it's the same site where uh, recently they that shooting happened a couple years back. Uh, Dylan What's-His-Face shot a bunch of Bible study attendants. Same church. Uh, basically, Vesey is familiar with the French Revolution. He's a free person of color. He's familiar with the French Revolution. He's familiar with Haiti. In fact, he had been to Haiti. And he wants to make something similar happen in the Carolina Low Country. Remember, the Carolina Low Country is this very you know marshy place where slaves are kind of left to themselves because the land's bad and the work is hard. And most of the white people just kind of stay around Charleston and just do their own thing. And so basically what, what Vesey is doing, he's making a lot of appeals to race, you know, the blackness of it, to class, because he's a, a more of a middle class black person, and also religion. Uh, Vesey is a churchgoer. He's well versed in the Bible. Uh, this is one of the things that people feared by teaching slaves Christianity was this fear that, you know what, maybe they will start, you know, using the Bible against us. And that's kind of what Vesey does. Vesey's like, hey, you know, there's more to the Bible than the book of Philemon. And if you go to like Exodus, uh, this guy Moses gets the slaves out of, uh, out of Egypt. So we should totally do that. And he also, like I said, by using somebody like Gullibach Pritchard, is also using traditional African beliefs. It's a double-edged sword. Vesey is using Christianity to support this, but also he's using traditional um, African you know, belief system. Granted, Eastern African, most of the people are Western African, but that kind of gives a bit of exoticism to it. Uh, Gullibach Jack Pritchard uh, passes out some charms and other fetishes to the slaves to uh, protect them. Basically, it's like, you know, if you have these crab claw necklaces, it's going to detect the bullets and nobody's going to help you. And I should also mention, Vesey is actually a founder of um, of Mother Emanuel uh, AME Church. Uh, Mother Emanuel Church, which is the same church that got shot up by Dylan Roof uh, a couple years ago, the white supremacist guy. So as you see, this is a merger of a lot of different fears, a lot of different uh, dynamics in play here. Uh, Vesey is actually undone by members of his own organization. Uh, there are some, basically some spies within the organization, some people working for the Charleston uh, government, working for the Charleston elites. Um, basically, he and several others are arrested because of this. Uh, they never actually do the rebellion. Uh, that is one thing about DeMarc Vesey, is that the rebellion never actually happens. Um, Gabriel's rebellion does happen. It's taken out pretty quick. Uh, DeLon's rebellion, the one in New Orleans... Uh, that happens. It gets taken out pretty quick. Later on, Nat Turner's Rebellion definitely happens. Demark Vesey is, is just talk of rebellion that gets underdone. Uh, 35 people are executed. 35 people are executed about, about this, including Demark Vesey. Demark, Denmark, you can call me either way. Uh, in response, Charleston really cracks down on like meetings or organizations of black persons, like in general. 
Like, any meeting of black people, doesn't matter if you're free or enslaved or whatever, they start saying no black people can be trusted. Uh, teaching slaves to read was became illegal. There's also uh, less trust of, quote-unquote, uh, outside agitators. Uh, became more likely to mistrust outsiders or northerners. They're basically, it's this old idea like, oh, our blacks were happy, but then they were screwed over by outside agitators trying to mess them up. You know, they talk about how DeMarc comes, you know, from s somewhere else and the fact that he'd been to Haiti and other places. Uh, if you look at this map, I really like this map. Because you can see, like, the four big slave conspiracies that happen. There are not that many of them. There really aren't that many of them, all things considered. And they all happen in places which have a fairly high slave population. I mean, Louisiana, um, Virginia, and South Carolina. But the fear of these rebellions is way more than the actual rebellions themselves. Uh, basically, various you know white persons get really terrified of this, and they really kind of leaned upon it. Now, another reason why this happens, if you go over one slide, is because of what happens with the economy. Um, economies is starting to change in this time period. Uh, the expansion of slavery, the expansion of the economy, I should say, outside of slavery made the word market dependent upon outside forces, this seems to cause a sense of distrust. Um, you know, with things like factories, they're more dependent upon outside forces rather than, hey, how did the crop come in this year? And so the economy was viewed as a little bit more volatile, and also people are becoming a bit more mobile, families are moving around, uh, local ties are a bit weaker. This also seems to go against what the slaveholders have. Uh, slavery and politics, you have quite a bit going on here. Uh, the Democratic Party really comes into vogue after Andrew Jackson. We didn't talk too much about Jackson in this class. Eh, kind of a bummer. He's pretty important. But just know that Andrew Jackson brings about the modern Democratic Party. And he really, you know, Andrew Jackson's whole shtick was that he claims to represent the common man. Basically the common man, outside money influence, outside big business, outside the banks. And this really turned into the Southern Mail. Pretty much Andrew Jackson's, like, base support is Southern males, who aren't common half the time. Half the, like, some of his most ardent supporters are these very rich, very moneyed, elite slaveholders who view themselves as the common people. They're very much interested in championing the cause of white men. Now, to be fair, to be fair, the Whigs, who oppose the Democrats in this time period, uh... They are also very much for the white man. Um, neither is very keen on black men, or black people in general. Uh, the Whigs tend to be more anti-slavery, even though you do have some Southern Whigs who do believe in slavery. They don't really have that consistent of an ideology outside of opposing the Democrats, I should say. Um, they really don't have that much of a real coherent, cohesive, consistent ideology uh, outside of opposing the Democratic Party, they're not very strong in the South. You do have some Southern Whigs, not too, too many. Uh, they're more, quote-unquote, moral. They're less prone to be poor slavery, pro-slavery, but they're not truly an abolitionist party. Uh, some of them are abolitionists, not too many. Uh, they're more anti-slaveholder than they are pro-black. Like, you've heard me say that a million times. The Whigs really go into this. And, and one of the reasons why the Whigs really get powerful is because they support this version of evangelical Christianity that comes about because of the Second Great Awakening. Now, the Second Great Awakening is a huge, huge, hugely important thing in U.S. history. 
Um, I personally argue it's more important than the First Great Awakening. Other historians think differently than me, but you know what? You're not in their class. I don't think I'm ever going to ask you which Great Awakening is more important. Uh, the Second Great Awakening further democratizes religion. Now, that seems weird. It seems like I'm mixing things. It's like, Tully, wait a minute. You're talking about democracy and religion? Yes, indeed. It takes a lot of cues from Andrew Jackson in championing the common man. All right? The First Great Awakening is like, hey, you know, maybe the frozen chosen elites aren't to it. Maybe, you know, God is going to be a more um, emotive experience. Uh, this one goes even harder about that. Uh, evangelicals, as you call them, they are like, Usually pushing this version of Christianity into politics. Uh, before this time, you know, most most politicians are churchgoers. I mean, especially in colonial times, um, membership of the Anglican Church was pretty much mandatory to do pretty much anything. Uh, however, this is a time of like the big camp meeting. Uh, that, that's the main thing I want you to think of. This kind of big camp meeting. In fact, if you go over one slide, you're going to see a camp meeting. It's not an established church. It's like the idea that you're going to have this traveling evangelist come in. Um, you know, it says that, you know, maybe you don't need special education to become a preacher. Uh, before this time, you know, if you want to become a pastor, well, you have to go to a college somewhere, a place like Harvard. Um, Harvard was actually founded to be like a school for preachers to go to. You might not have known that, but it was. Or Yale or some of the elite Ivy League schools. You know, you have to go to, you have to learn Greek or Latin and you know, really deep dive into the to the Christianity, into the Bible to really become a pastor. The Second Great Awakening said, no, you don't need that. If you just have the, the spirit of God, quote-unquote, you could become the greatest pastor ever. In fact, uh, getting so much education would be detrimental. They said, you know, if you have so much education, you're, you're too elite, you're too stuffy, and you're not doing enough to let God move through you. Uh, the Second Great Awakening is viewed as anti-elitist. It's also viewed as anti-intellectual. Uh, kind of just like, eh, we don't really care for these type of smarty-pants people. Now, the other thing it meant is that for the first time, like, period, white folks are seeing a value in black people when it comes to religion. If you go over one slide, you're going to see that all of a sudden you have pastors who are specifically preaching towards black people. Uh, this was kind of a, a side effect of the first Great Awakening where you had like, oh yeah, we're going to have these separate, you know, we're going to have these churches that are segregated where you have like black and white people come together and then later on the black people are like, eh, we want to make our own AME churches and stuff. Uh, but now you have people like George Whitfield who are like explicitly preaching towards black people. who say that, hey, you know, the fact that they're quote unquote less refined than we are is actually of a benefit in Christianity. You know, he's like, you know, I, I saw this man preach one, uh, Whitfield talks about how he saw a former slave, or maybe he was even a current slave, preach. And he's like, you know, he might not have known his Bible chapter and verse, but his spirit was so strong, he was so moved that, like, he preached more effectively than so many more educated people that I knew. And if you look at that slide, if you look at the next slide, where you see the growth of these various churches and the great, Second Great Awakening, you're going to see that three denominations really explode in popularity. Three populations exploded popularity in general, I should mention. In general, I should mention they, they are getting much more popular, but especially amongst African Americans. Uh, the Presbyterian Church, the Baptist Church, and especially the Methodist Church, uh, all three of whom explode in popularity within the United States in general. In general. Uh, not just for African Americans, but in general. Uh, a lot of Americans go for this 
denominations, for these denominations. And that's still kind of the case to this day. I mean, uh, Methodism is not as popular as it once was, I would say, but if you talk about like Protestant denominations within the United States, you're talking Baptist, Methodist, and Presbyterians. Like, that is 100% the primo Protestant denominations within the United States, and all these come about during the Second Great Awakening. So now that everybody's got this religion, they got to figure out how are they going to do things. And this is where we get into the benevolent empire. A benevolent empire, basically there's more of an interest in making sure that people lived in the proper way. You know, it's not enough just to say you believe in something, you believe in God. No, you've got to show how you believe. Your faith needs to be in action. Basically, they designed to fight sins, to rescue the souls. They believe that like this, the action itself is what is hurting people. Evangelicals are really pushing this version of practical Christianity. This basically is like, you know, Christianity, not in like elite words, not in like reading the Book of Mark in its original Latin or whatever. Actually, the original Greek. Um, the Bible is not written in Latin, it was Greek and Hebrew. But the New Testament was written in Greek. Sorry, I'm getting lost in semantics. Basically, it's like, it doesn't matter. It just matters how you live, not why you, not what you believe. Uh, the most popular cause for this is temperance, uh, basically getting rid of alcohol. Uh, that, that seems to be the, the main issue that people are really trying to push. But also abolition is a fairly popular cause. Other popular causes are things like education, medical care, and rights for women. But abolition really grows as a part of this. Abolition really grows as a part of this. And by the way, this is happening in the 1820s, 1830s. So like, not too long before the Civil War. You know, there's so much pressure that's put upon abolition right before the Civil War, really pushing getting rid of slavery. A lot of things cause that. The slave rebellions are part of that. But the Second Great Awakening is another part, particularly with this push for basically practical, here's, you know, we need faith in action, not just thought. But then there's the issue about what should we do to with the African-Americans once slavery's got rid of, this is where we get into colonization. I mentioned them before the um, colonization, the uh, American, colony, American Colonization Society, probably the most important of the various colonization societies, uh, had a lot of prominent slaveholders in its membership, which uh, kind of complicated things because they aren't necessarily against the slavery. Uh, they claim to be against slavery, but it gets murky in practicality. Uh, there are two major goals. First of all, free the slaves, kind of, sort of, gradually, um, paid, compensated. And then take those free people, take the free uh, slaves to West Africa, Liberia to be exact. Uh, Liberia to be exact, as you can see right there um, on the map, they go to Sierra Leone, later make Liberia. Capital is Monrovia, which is, uh, if you go over one more slide, that's the capital of Sierra Leone. Uh, named after James Monroe, the president. Uh, there really is no plan for free black people to stay in the United States. Um, there's no real talk of making like a black state like the Mormons got. Uh, the Mormons make the well the territory of Utah later becomes a state, uh, pretty much as a independent state just for people in this religion. Uh, there was vague talk about maybe making that for black people, like keep them in the United States but keep them their own separate state. Um, doesn't really go too far. Still, the American Colonization Society is pretty popular. 
And they never really um, understand why they have, like, very adamant opposition against them. Now, I should mention, they do have quite a bit of support within the black community. Uh, there are quite a bit number of black advocates of colonization. Basically, some black leaders feel that the U.S. would never fully accept them as equals, and they'd have a better shot at a good life if they went back to Africa. Plus, I mean, a lot of these people are really tied to Christianity. Uh, there's the whole goal of uh, converting the pagans, quote-unquote, of Africa. Now, the first group that goes over to Liberia is led by Coker, who's an AME bishop. They make it to Liberia in 1847, but it's not really a ton of people who make it over. And it's obvious this is not going to be a long-term solution. So basically, some start thinking, hey, maybe we should go somewhere closer, like an all-black place, pretty close. Let's think about Haiti. Uh, so basically, some of them are like, you know what, let's go to Haiti. They try to take free black people and send them to Haiti. That doesn't go too well for a very particular reason. Um, Haiti is very Catholic. Haiti is also very French. Um, you're taking slaves who are primarily Protestant and English, Anglo-based. I mean, I know they're black people with their own culture, but they're still, you know, they're, they're pretty, they're pretty, you know, pretty English in like their, their language and culture and mannerisms and stuff. And uh, does not work very well. Basically, it's a, you know, aside from being black, they have really nothing in common. It's, you know, French Catholics versus English Protestants. And most of these uh, black people who go to Haiti uh, come back. Most of these African-Americans who go to Haiti, they come on back. Um, ironically, you'd think the Creoles of South Louisiana would be really jonesing to go to uh, to uh, Haiti because, hey, they're, they're French and Catholic too. Uh, you'd be very wrong. Um, the, the Creoles of South Louisiana thought of themselves as quote unquote better than the Haitians. Uh, you have to remember the Creoles of like places like New Orleans, they really consider themselves French, not black. And they consider the Haitians to be interlopers. They're like, oh my God, they, they, you know, they, they, they destroyed our beloved army cause we're French too. Uh, in that though, if you go over one side, you will see that there are also quite a bit of opposition to uh, colonization for, amongst African-Americans. Uh, I'm going to be you know, I'm not going to give you specifics, but just know in general, um, a lot of these black folks who get who oppose colonization, African-Americans, I should say, uh, they don't consider Africa to be their home. Um, in fact, in general, a lot of them look down upon it. Like, you know, Africa is not a great place to go. We don't care for it too much. It's a it's a horrible place, they say. You know, it's, it, we were we you know, we did better to, uh, you know, get out of there. Uh, likewise. They felt that the uh, American Colonization Society was actually a pro-slavery society uh, designed to simply get black people out of the United States. <laughs> they said basically it's like, you know, they claim they're, oh, they're anti-slavery, but their real goal is getting black people away from here. They claimed it didn't, it couldn't really be trusted. And also they said it was also kind of racist for people to say, you know, you should go back to Africa. They, they said it was kind of racist that all black people should live in Africa. They're like, you know what, no, I, I live in America. I live in the United States. Um... It may not be perfect, but it's where I'm from. You know, I don't know Africa. I don't know anybody in Africa. I'd rather not go to Africa. And that's kind of the main opposition to it. I'm not going to get too much into particulars. Uh, women. There are some women involved in black abolitionists. Not too, too many. Uh, women are still viewed as second-class citizens during this time. Uh, black women doubly so. So they're really not that high status-wise. You do, however, have some people get involved in these various groups. Uh, usually in auxiliary groups, usually you have like the, the, the women's circle that meets, you know, kind of underneath one of these other bigger organizations. But there are a few formal organizations like the Female Anti-Slavery Society. 
Uh, you know, but most of the time, uh, these kind of practical abolitionists, they're, they're generally women of color who, just speaking of the time period, tend to be poor, having less educated. Uh, they are not elite. They are not elite uh, women in this time period. They're not elite societal elites. Um, they, they try to be as respectable as they can, but there's some barriers they just can't cross. Uh, there also aren't enough free black women wealthy enough to be deemed respectable. I mean, like I said, some of these people certainly do try. But if you're talking about the North, you don't have a ton of free black women of color who are wealthy. They have quite a bit of them in a place like New Orleans, but they're also tend to be Creole and could be invested in the slave system. Now, the most important real abolitionists really to come about before the Civil War, probably the most prominent, I don't want to say important, but most prominent, is William Lloyd Garrison. All right, William Lloyd Garrison comes apart thanks to the Baltimore Alliance, uh, basically an alliance between various, you know, groups that are involved with slavery. Uh, William Lloyd Garrison, he's a white abolitionist, has his own newspaper. Uh, he's more radical than most of your abolitionists uh, because he doesn't believe that gradual emancipation is moral. Uh, he says basically, yo, emancipation needs to happen, needs to happen now, needs to be very strong, very severe. Uh, taking your time is, is you're just pussyfooting around. That's not a moral thing to do. He tolerates the American... Uh, colonization society for quite a while, but gets more radical when he starts advocating for immediate emancipation. Immediate emancipation. Um, this becomes his core and totally changes the whole tenor of the whole abolition conversation prior to the Civil War. A lot, I mean, because William Lloyd Garrison was hugely important. He later uh, forms probably the most important of these anti-slavery societies, the American Anti-Slave Society, uh, the AASS, whatever you want to call it, the AASS. I know its initials say A-ass, but whatever. Uh, this is probably the most important um, abolition society prior to the Civil War. And it's considered radical. It's considered radical because he is talking for immediate emancipation of slaves. Now, is he going to be compensated? He doesn't really say one way or the other. <laughs> now, all this really changes thanks to Nat Turner. And one of the things that really encourages Nat Turner, one of the reasons why you have Nat Turner, is there's a black abolitionist by the name of David Walker. David Walker, he is an abolitionist, he is black. He writes basically a little pamphlet called The Appeal. All right, he writes a little pamphlet called The Appeal. Talks about the struggle over slavery. Um, you know, he really, really influences people like William Lloyd Garrison because he's talking about immediate uh, abolition, immediate emancipation. Um, and the other thing that Walker says to make sure it's going to happen is he starts advocating for violence against slaveholders. That's the thing that no other abolition society had talked about. Um, yes, the slaveholders are, are mortified of these various slave rebellions. They're afraid of, like, you know, violence in the streets. And now you have a free black person of color. A free black person of color. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a black person of color is definitely a thing. A free person of color, a black man, writing basically, yo, we need to be violent against the slave masters so that we can kind of push them a little bit. You know, if, they, if they're not afraid of violence, they're not going to do anything. They're just going to pussyfoot around. This inspires a more radical and militant black mindset and really increases the fear in white people of a conspiracy designed to get rid of slavery. The fact that this guy is, you know, talking and out there in the world really freaks people out. And this is really, 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 really 
really, I'm saying really a bunch because this is very important, exemplified by Nat Turner. Uh, Nat Turner really amps the fear uh, with his slave revolt, and mainly because of his privilege. Uh, that's going to sound really weird because he is a slave, but he is a very privileged slave. He is a privileged slave. Uh, Nat Turner gets his start in in the slave world. Uh, it's actually part of the Second Great Awakening. Um, he's from Virginia, which, as we said, has a very high number of slaves. Um, he's semi-literate. It's semi-literate. It is doubtful he read Walker. All right, It's very doubtful that he actually read Walker. What he did do was read the Bible. He was very religious, super religious. And at first, he is used as a preacher for various slaves. In fact, his master kind of loaned him out, rented him out, to go preach at the various plantations. Go preach at the various plantations, uh, basically saying, hey, you know, um, bada-boom, bada-bing, I'm black, you're a slave, but, uh, you know, be cool with your masters, they're nice people, that's what God wants you to do. But in time, he, he has some stuff happen to him. Uh, he, he starts claiming that he's getting visions from God telling him to free the slaves, and, and use violence if necessary. And ultimately, he's, go, he's able to go around to all these plantations, uh, because he's a preacher, and basically talk to the slaves about this. And his uprising happens on the evening of August 21st, 1831. His band, which is between eh, 60 or 70 people, uh, is going around killing various slaveholders, going to various plantations and just straight up killing people. Uh, it kills about 60 white people, men, women, and children, most of any any slave revolt, uh, bar none, bar none. More people die in Nat Turner's rebellion than anybody else. Um, ultimately, a militia comes to take him out. Uh, they do. And then Nat Turner and some of his followers are executed. That's not really what's important. If you go over one slide, you're going to see the, the capture of Nat Turner. Uh, he's, he's out for about two months running around uh, Virginia, uh, he's talking about mainly maybe going down to Florida, maybe doing something, but it mainly he just seems to be killing folks. And that is something that scares the crippity crap out of white people. Okay? This scares the crap out of white persons. And even though abolition societies are giving lip service to nonviolence, uh, they start openly admiring people like Nat Turner. They said, you know what, maybe Nat Turner's got the right idea. And so this also really cements this type of animosity between the slaveholders and the abolition societies. And so, like, the tension is being ratcheted up. So if you go over more, you'll see the various conclusions. Two separate anti-slave movements. They do influence each other. Northern abolitionists, like the Quakers, generally are talking more gradual, you know, non-violent means. Uh, people like Gabrielle Vesting, particularly Turner. Turner used violence. Tur used violence. And the anti-slavery movement was indeed biracial, but they would often have very different, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Very different uh, goals in mind and different mindsets for it. And so that will do it for this lecture. So uh, flip on over to the next one and we'll keep on going.